every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Gina Hurtatsos. Gina is the Chief Marketing Officer at LogicGate with over 20 years of experience in enterprise software marketing. Prior to LogicGate, she served as VP of Marketing at Forkites and AVP Global Marketing at Highland, where she managed global marketing programs, operations, events, and demand center. On this episode, Gina shares insights into governance, risk, and compliance, and why risk management is a strategic necessity. You'll also hear advice for creating campaign maps with awareness, activity, and content that satisfies the buying jobs of customers and prospects. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by Qualified. Qualified is the pipeline generation platform for revenue teams that use Salesforce you can intelligently grow your pipeline by understanding the signals of buying intent and having real-time conversations right on your website. You can learn more at qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Gina Hortazzo, CMO of LogicGate, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today... I'm joined by a special guest, Gina. How are you? I'm fine, Ian. How are you? Very excited to chat with you today. Excited to chat about Logicate, about marketing, about demand, and everything in between. So how the heck did you get started? What was your first job in demand gen or marketing? Well, before I get into what my first job was in demand gen, I think I should talk to about my first real job. And it wasn't in demand gen. It wasn't in B2B marketing. I was actually a management consultant, a very junior management consultant. And my job was to run uh, meeting planner and guest satisfaction surveys for luxury hotel chains. So I fielded the surveys. We talked to all kinds of guests and people who ran meetings at these very nice hotels. And we analyzed the data to find out what was it about their experience that made them most likely to recommend or most likely to come back. And we prepared reports for each property. And then I traveled around each property to talk to the management of these hotels, what elements of that experience from their meeting planner clients or their guests, they could most move the needle on if they changed, therefore make more money for their property. Now, what does that have to do with marketing? Well, it certainly formed the basis, the foundation of my philosophy that marketing is all about listening to your customers in your market and making sure that you focus on the really important things to get what they want right. It was so important because it combined a data-driven process with the individual and personalization because each hotel was different. There were some hotels that were beautiful historical hotels and their guests didn't like the fact that their rooms were too small, that the bathrooms didn't work very well, that the plumbing was old. And then there are big shiny new hotels whose guests were not really liking the service they were getting. So each hotel was different. But when I actually started working in B2B marketing, I drew heavily on my data-driven background, my management consulting background, and used it to forge how I approached demand gen strategies to really get to the root of what the customer needed, what they wanted, and how we could uniquely provide it with them in a personalized way. And so flash forward to your time right now, CMO LogicGate, tell me about it. 
I've been at Logicate for about three and a half years. The company is about eight years old. And so it's like 20 years if you use dog years as a proxy for <laughs> startup life. You know, Logicate is a disruptive player in an industry that's been around for a long time. Logicate provides a platform and services to help businesses manage the risk in their organization. And as you probably know, because you read the headlines every day, risk comes in all forms. There is the macro risk, geopolitical, business continuity, natural disasters. And there's also the micro risk in your organization around how do you control for the people that are sitting in the airport with their laptops open and they walk away? Pose a security risk for your company. Or how do you make sure that every vendor you work with to make your business go doesn't pose additional risk for your company? Risk is becoming more complex the velocity, volume, and variety of risk is compounding as we live in an increasingly global world and all of the things that are happening. And so companies really do need a platform to help them automate, supercharge, and be able to manage risk effectively. And so what is so interesting about the industry that we're in and the people that we serve is that you know this is not a fad. I actually marketed the same category of software over 10 years ago at a different company, and it will continue to be a very salient pain that buyers who work in cyber, that buyers who work in risk management and compliance are going to need to grapple with. And it's also very important for business people like you and me to understand the risk that we actually represent into the organization. You know, most of us who've been around for a while remember when GDPR actually became a thing. And often for many of us, that was the first time we actually had to, we as marketers had to think about the intersection of compliance and risk management as part of our marketing jobs, right? Like, I don't know if you were part of this, but I certainly Mm -hmm. remembered I was in a demand gen leadership role at the time. And we had to start a task force and it was literally three months in a war room trying to figure out how to operationalize the 700 page very vague law into making sure that we are not in violation of it. And it wasn't just as simple as, you know, putting an opt-out message and a big prominent button at the, at the base of your emails. We had to do all kinds of stuff to make sure we were compliant. And so that's just one example of a significant risk that carries with it significant penalties if you are out of compliance or not managing the risk appropriately that Logigate helps to solve for. So We don't sell to marketers who are your listeners, but I will say as a marketer, if you are not friends with your risk manager, with your information security leader, or with your compliance person in your organization, go and buy them a cup of tea and give them a fist bump and make friends with them because they are protecting you every day. Yeah, it's great advice. I mean, it's one of those things that, like you said, marketers just weren't prepared for then and compliance and ever-evolving and a cookie-less future and all those things now affect our our life in, in a business way and in a compliance way. And it's all the product founder that doesn't want to do accounting, right? There's parts of your job that you have to do and, and compliance is a part of all of our jobs now. And we didn't necessarily think that was ever going to be the case. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it actually makes you a better business person. It's not just about data privacy, but think about all of the vendors that you work with to make your business go. You work with people who have access to your servers. You work with companies that also have access to your data and lists. And it's good business practice to understand all the people you do business with, the companies, and making sure that they have their ducks in a row as well. As opposed to thinking about it as a, like, I roll like, okay, we have to do the mandatory harassment training and we have to fill out the form at the end, or you got to make sure that you're updating your privacy policy on your website to be in compliance with the law. It's actually good business practice to think about risk as part of your 
day-to-day and a part of your culture? Because we found that a lot of our customers are able to make better decisions, take smarter risks because they are so risk-aware. They understand what they're dealing with so much better than they would be if they did not have a risk-aware culture. All right, let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? This is where we go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest, demand gen secrets. (laughs) Love it. You've already told us a little bit about LogicGate, but dive into your customers. Who exactly are you selling to? What size organizations? Yeah, we sell to mid-market and enterprise companies across all industries, because no matter what business you're in, you're going to have to manage risk and comply with rules and regulations. And our buyers are typically information security professionals, cyber risk professionals, compliance professionals, and just kind of general risk management professionals that work in legal or operations or in IT. And I'm curious because you have in that buying committee, you have people who seems like every single day 24 seven, they're thinking about compliance. And then you have people who probably think about it like we do in marketing with like 4% of our brain or something like that, uh, or maybe more. But I'm curious, like, how do you think about marketing to those different personas in the buyer committee? Yeah, it all comes down to understanding what the different pain points are of the different personas, right? Just as any other business, we have kind of the main person who's got the pain And then we usually have their boss, we usually have someone in ancillary department, and we have the economic decision maker. And each one of those people has a different buying job during the different phases. And each one of them has different levels of engagement involvement in the purchase cycle. So for us, you know, being able to map out that buyer's journey in a way that reflects the way that our specific market buys. And this is all stuff that I'm sure you've heard a hundred times before. But one thing that we're noticing, especially in times of economic uncertainty or just, you know, the past weirdness of the past couple of years is that we're not always competing against our competitor. We're competing against some other project that rolls all the way up to the CFO or CIO. And so it's one thing to say, we understand our buying committee. We understand what their different buying jobs are along the way. The person who's actually managing that project has different buying jobs than the person who comes in at the end in the evaluation than the person who actually writes the check or signs the PO. But it's another to be able to say, we did a great job differentiating against our competition, but now we actually have to differentiate for overall share of the customer's wallet. So that's something that we've been hard at work on as we've been seeing that trend in the market. How do you arrange your team to go to market? You know, it's interesting because obviously in the news, there have been all kinds of discussions around layoffs and a lot of a lot of companies have been correcting that way and how that translates sometimes in CMO circles is deciding if you have to make a decision what are the badged humans that that really need to work for your company and if there's anything else that you could potentially get away with an agency relationship or or an outsource relationship I've done a lot of thinking around this over the years and even though we are a lean team because we are a startup scale up in our growth trajectory, it's incredibly important to have product marketing, to have demand creation. And within that demand creation team, I actually have my demand creation team organized in digital campaigns, ABM and field. We don't have 
a staff of 50, but we do have dedicated specializations. And then we have communications and content function as well. So again, lean team, but those humans, and then we have a set of of other folks that we work with that can help with staff augmentation, with operations and analytics and that kind of thing. But in order to be able to compete in our market in a fast-paced B2B SaaS in the market that we play in, we have to have these people in these specializations. And we also have them working very tightly together. You know, if you look at a, a campaign map and you see the sequencing of awareness activity and content to demand creation, taking the customers and prospects along that journey and giving them content to satisfy their buying jobs at that phase for that particular person at that time. It takes every single one of those specializations working together to provide for a cohesive campaign. And so it's not just about the individual pillars and the departments within marketing, but it's also about how do you operationalize the interlock? How do you make sure that the people who are producing the content, the people who are thinking about the awareness job and the people who are thinking about the more that demand creation engagement, take them through the first step. So they want to take the next step with you are all working together for a consistent experience for that prospect. And where does demand fit within your marketing strategy? So demand is my largest team. And actually my demand team consists of full funnel marketing. So we have the team that specializes in making ourselves found and getting people to come to our website, engage with our content. We have teams that execute on integrated campaigns to keep those prospects moving along and engaging with our content to get them warmer and warmer. We have field marketing team members that are actually working with active sales stage prospects. And we have a customer marketing team who takes care of our customers post-purchase to keep them engaged and educated, making them referenceable, making them excited to be part of the Logigate family. That's my largest team. They obviously have the lion's share of the budget, but again, they do work very closely with our product marketing team on messaging and positioning and our content comms team to make sure that we are saying the right things out in market at the awareness level and with our ecosystem with analysts, journalists, and other influencers to get our, our name out there so that people can not only understand that we have a, something that can help solve their problem, but we also help cut through the noise because it is a very old, loud, and crowded industry that we play in. Like that old, loud, and crowded. Uh, old, loud, and crowded. No, we're not creating a brand new category. I think that that's been a very popular thing, kind of a very popular trend, but the reality is governance, risk, and compliance has been around for decades, and it will continue in perpetuity because everybody needs to strategically manage risk. We are providing a very disruptive, cool, cost-effective, and very interesting needed solution to a very old problem, which means there's a lot of competitors. There's a lot of companies out there that have way more money and way more people than we do. So combining our efforts, making sure that we're running those integrated campaigns, making sure that we're really cutting through the noise because we're getting right to the heart of what that prospect's problem is and that we're giving them that content that serves them in their buying job everything has to be working in order for us to be able to compete. So we've been growing way faster than the market, the market it's been growing. And so I think our, our efforts are paying off. Yeah. That's a fascinating thing. Cause you know, obviously we do talk a lot about category creation, about people who are sort of swimming in, in the 
proverbial blue oceans or whatever, much more about positioning when we're talking about an existing market or or a legacy market or things Mm -hmm. like that. So much of marketing and positioning being about what you do and nobody else does, right? How do you think about that in terms of like your overall strategy? If you're, are you still sort of marketing a future that changes your customers' day-to-day lives? Yeah, yeah. You know, even if you're not changing, quote unquote, the industry. We are absolutely... And we're not just saying that as a pain of vision of the possible. We have real results. We have customers that tell us stories like one of the members of our customer advisory board had to produce a report once a month that he'd have to give to the CEO to report out to the board on just like how well is the company managing risk. And the way that they used to have to do it was have a person on staff print out reports from all different systems, take them home, spread them out on their dining room table, and spend four days rekeying the report. This still happens. It happens all the time. That's crazy. Once they bought a system that allowed them to put everything in one place, that same report took that person five minutes. All they had to do was press a button and write a summary. We have one customer that tells us that they're lives, their working lives was a game of whack-a-mole. Have you ever played that game whack-a-mole where you've got the hammer and the thing pops up and as soon as you hit it, another thing pops up? Well, the business of risk management can feel like constant fighting of fires. And you often don't know if the fire you're fighting is the most important one. Mm -hmm. And so in order to be able to manage risk better, like their lives afterwards, literally they log in, they take a look at a report that looks like a heat map. They click on the stuff that shows in red and that's how they plan their day. And so the problem is not new. Managing risk and compliance and making sure they're not accidentally in violation because somebody didn't do something somewhere or making sure that you can compete in your market because your business practices are sound. Well, that that is always going to be an issue that companies face. And it makes absolutely no sense for you to, you know, use emails and spreadsheets and phone calls and paper to be able to do this. There's a better way. I've worked in a category creation business before, and I understand what that looks like. I understand what that pacing is. I understand what that positioning looks like. I would submit that in markets that solve for a pain that is going to continue to be a pain forever, like governance, risk, and compliance, you don't necessarily have to be a category creator to be incredibly impactful, incredibly truthful in your position that you are creating a better future. And there's there's room for a lot of players because it's an absolutely huge market. Yeah, that's really cool. Are risk people risk averse in their buying of softwares and products? Sometimes, but you'd be surprised. I would say that just like any other market landscape, We definitely had our crossing the chasm moment. Mm -hmm. And in our early days, we were definitely selling to the early adopters, the Mm -hmm. people who were motivated by, I don't know if you have a copy of crossing the chasm. I still reference mine. It remains true. When you're early in your development of your product, we knew from very early on that we had good product market fit just because we did have a good understanding of the industry. But the personas that we were selling to in those early days, if you remember crossing the chasm, those early adopters tend to be motivated by different things. They tend to be like really looking to be a game changer within their company. They're looking at being a change agent. They're looking at whatever system or, or thing that they bring to the table can actually act as an amplifier for them in their career. Yep. 
And by virtue of that, they're willing to take a risk on a more disruptive piece of technology. They tend to be more experimental. They, they tend to be more tolerant of early on in a software company's life cycle, you're going to have buggy stuff that you're going to have to release. Companies, people in those early adopter mindsets tend to be more tolerant of buggy stuff and lean customer support staff. We are now in that early majority. We are now selling to buyers that have a different set of motivations. They're not looking for revolutionary. They're going to change. They're going to be the one person that changes their whole company. They're looking for something that solves their problem, something that's proven and where they can get customer references of customers that look like them, whether it's industry or similar buyer or similar use case. And they're looking for incremental improvements and they're not necessarily looking for the game changer stuff. And they're, and therefore they're slightly less tolerant of buggy software. They're slightly yeah. less tolerant of taking a chance on an unknown upstart. And that's a testament to our maturity as a company. And it's a testament to the fact that we do have hundreds and hundreds of customers now. We can point to that success and that our product has the reputation of actually working. So, you know, regardless of whether you're in the governance, risk, and compliance industry like I am, or if you are in podcast software company, in your early days, you are just going to be working with buyers, even if they have the same role and title, the early adopters think differently than the early majority, think differently than the late majority. And that's when you're more commoditized. So that's kind of how I think about it. So some of them are not necessarily risk averse. You have to understand what their motivations are. Yeah, we we talk about on the show a lot, this idea of sort of like, how can I spend more time with my kids? How can I get time to go camping? How do I not have to work on Thanksgiving morning or whatever it is? Those type of role, as someone who worked mm-hmm. in the government and <laughs> <laughs> knows that anything that the government Love touches- Love to hear stories and, about that, Ian. Yeah, that end up <laughs> tends to be slower by miles and lots more things that are printed out and uh, using Sharpies sure. and highlighters, that saving people time in their lives is such a motivator, but it's so mm-hmm. individual, right? And then uh, them having a budget for that is very difficult, right? Because you're like, hey, this is going to save me weeks of time. And your employer's like, why pay you the same amount anyways? (laughs) So like saving two weeks of time, that's your job. Like, you know, are you going to take a pay cut so we can buy the software? You know what I mean? So to your point that you have that sort of friction, not only of like, hey, this is a, it's a nice to have, it's not a need to have right this second, because we don't have a budget line item for this yet. And that's going to be a conversation that says, hey, if I get out of the weeds, I can be more strategic. And if I'm more strategic, we can get in front of things and that sort of stuff. It's a much different type of a sales cycle than what you were talking about earlier, which is, hey, this industry is changing and I need to be at the forefront of it. I always find it very interesting in times of economic uncertainty and down cycles that the first thing people look to cut is system spend. And while I understand, because oftentimes there's a, there is a lot of waste and it makes sense to sharpen your pencil on that. And certainly you don't want to have to cut staff unless it's absolutely necessary. It's kind of counterintuitive. If you use your systems correctly, you can indeed do more with less. I feel like the pendulum is swinging back the other way. But let me give you an example. The best in my favorite campaign that I ever ran, I worked for a software company who we had a vertical as go to market. And one of our main verticals was healthcare. And we had noticed kind of a slowdown in our business. It was during a, a minor economic downturn. And one of our insights was when we started talking to the customers and talking to the prospects that didn't end up buying from us, is that the shift was that we were no longer competing against 
our core competitor. We are more often competing against, do you buy a new MRI machine? Do you hire another doctor? There's a hospital, you know, hospital concerns. Or do you spend the money upgrading your Epic system? And so we had done such a great job of positioning ourselves against our competition that we realized we actually had to pivot and position ourselves against not buying us because they needed a new MRI machine, which is a completely different thing than a piece of business software. And so we decided to create an integrated campaign that involved a ton of video content that helped to paint the picture of how software, yes, an MRI machine is vitally important, and spending money on something that could be a rising tide that raises all boats across the entire hospital system should be weighted differently than a physical purchase. We had to get scrappy because we didn't have a lot of money, but we found a customer, a local hospital that allowed us to shoot video in the hospital. We dressed our own people up as doctors and nurses that were interacting with the system. And we created a whole series of videos and, and other campaign content that showcased like the compare and contrast of how your life was before you invested in a system to help you do your job more efficiently and after. And it went like gangbusters. The results were amazing. And we were able to, you know, atomize that content across digital channels, the big anchor rock trade show that we had six months after the campaign launched. And it was really because we really dug into what those customers' needs were. And we were really able to arm our core buyer with the ROI, the references, the compare and contrast, like painting that picture visually through video content that they needed to get our project over the finish line. And we've noticed that again today, like every economic downturn, you start competing against bigger projects, other projects, not necessarily like the one project that your one champion has. All the projects at the CIO level, they're actually looking at them and trying to figure out how to weight them. I think that's that's an important lesson that I've seen over and over again. And it really kind of speaks back to like marketing's job is simple in concept, but not easy in execution. And that job is to put content in the right form with the right message in front of the right person at the right time and do it in a way that makes them want to not only move forward and fight for their project, but fight for you in particular. If we keep doing that, we keep thinking about what each of those elements means and how to staff against those elements, how to execute against those elements and how to make sure that that's being presented in a cohesive way then you're, you're going to win, even when the market's funky like it is right now. I love that. That's an awesome story. Oh, I love um, that campaign. I miss that campaign. All right, let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Where you open up the playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are your three mm-hmm. channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? digital, making ourselves findable. So the uneducated non-marketer thinks that organic traffic is free. We know it is not. (laughs) We know it it, it requires a lot of time, humans and, and systems and resources to make yourself findable. So those digital channels. The second would be in figuring out how to get human beings to interact with other human beings. We took a big hiatus on 
events, live in-person events during the pandemic. And I don't think anybody really wants to go back there. I don't think that we will ever go back to, you have to go to this trade show or else. So I think hybrid events are here to stay. But at the end of the day, human beings buy from other human beings and being able to look someone else in the eye, perhaps even shake their hand or give them an elbow bump is crucial to making connections that last. Um, And then the third part, the third channel tactic, I would say, is marketing needs to pay attention to the full funnel from first, hey, I stumbled on your website. What do you do? all the way to healthy lifetime customer. So keeping that engagement going and making sure that you have customer marketing as a discipline, even if you can't staff it, that you're taking care of your customers. Buyer journey research shows that the most tender part of a relationship and one and the part of the relationship that has the most impact on whether a customer churns after their contract is up is between contract sign and go live. Yeah, totally. And so marketing absolutely plays a part in that tender part of the customer journey, making sure that those customers, even if, you know, because a lot of times your customer has to wait for their turn in line for implementation, right? It's like sometimes it, it can be a couple of weeks. And so how do you keep that new tender excited, but, you know, gosh, a lot of changes coming early part of your relationship that they get more and more excited even if they got to wait a little while before their their go live happens, it builds up goodwill and makes sure that if things go wrong down the road, at least they feel like they can trust you. So I, I would say that would be the third thing. I totally agree. It's one of the things that we did at Caspian because like launching a podcast is like a very intimate type thing, right? Because like, especially if you yeah. have like your CEO as the host, a lot of energy and effort go into it. So like we invested a ton of resources into our launch team. Our launch team is like freaking mm-hmm. amazing. So that like we can hit yeah. a 60 day launch, which for like an enterprise company and for like this type of campaign and the complexity and all that stuff, we have seen huge dividends from that investment. And it was like super, I mean, we're not a very big team. So it was like a huge investment on our part to do that and to just put so much effort and energy into that. And the funny thing is we still have the same rigor that we used to have. Mm-hmm. Like that didn't really change, but the way we did it and increasing touches and increasing communication and increasing the number of meetings and those sort of things, like those all made it feel like things were moving, even though in the old way, all those things were moving anyways. Those yeah. those gates were all being met, but they were being met sort of like in dark, in the black yeah. box. And I think that that's one of the things that is a good marketing lesson is like marketing the steps of integration that are happening. Because otherwise it just feels like close contract, sales is off to do their thing. Mm-hmm. And wait, who's really holding my hand through this process? What are the steps? Who's holding and, my hand through this process? Yeah. yeah. How do you build that trust? I mean- 10 years ago, we weren't talking about Glassdoor ratings being part of the buyer journey or user reviews being part of the buyer journey. You differentiate on your tech and your offerings and they had a checklist. And if you yeah. check more of the boxes and you gave them a good discount and you could work with their procurement people, then you were done. Buyers look at Glassdoor ratings. Buyers look at user ratings. They look for words like trust, support. They want to be partners with their providers They want to know that you have their back and that it's like that old adage, no one ever got fired from using IBM. It's more than that. It's more than that because human beings buy from other human beings. And what are the elements of trust? How do you build a trusting relationship? Transparency, communication, 
if you make a mistake, you own up to it. If things go wrong, you make it right. And they know that mistakes happen and they can still count on you to make it right. And it sounds a lot like a personal relationship, but we're still humans and that that whole thing still applies. So kudos to the casting team for, for recognizing that early and having that as part of your DNA as you grow. That'll that'll be a key factor in your future success. Well, gee, thanks. I feel like it's, it's kind of the least we could do. Uh, to be fully honest. Which again, if that's part of your DNA, that's going to be a big part of your future success. I'm curious, how do you put that stuff in your marketing? Because that's the part that I always feel is so tricky. Is like for Caspian, one of the things I noticed is when people get to the onboarding call, the kickoff call, yeah, they're like, they say this all the time. So they're like, holy crap, your team is like amazing. Like I would get like text messages like during our kickoff call from the people like, dude, I didn't realize like how awesome your team is because the sales process, we didn't like have them in it. So I started like integrating them more into the like pre-sales process, but I've never put any of that stuff in our marketing, right? Because it's like not sort of the value prop of launch a world-class podcast in 60 days. So I'm just curious, how do you think about like putting that stuff in your marketing and that experience in your marketing? Mm -hmm. The easiest hack is, and it's not even really a hack. The easiest way to do that is by amplifying customer quotes and stories. We're a small company, we're growing fast, but we've managed to garner over 90 reviews on G2. And these customers use plain business language to talk about why they chose us, what they like about us, what they don't like about us, what they're using us for, and all the things. And we can literally copy and paste, these reviews are anonymized, right? And we can copy and paste those quotes. So many of the quotes for us has been around, your customer success team is awesome. We have felt so supported. Your teams took such great time to listen to what we really needed and was able to guide us because we thought we needed something, but we really needed something else. And your team was patient. Your team took time to listen. The best way to actually inject that ethos into your marketing is to let your customers tell your story. If you are working with customers on case studies, even outside the review process, make sure you have included in your questions, questions specifically about their experience between you know contract sign and whatever, what they liked about it. And if they don't like something about it, my gosh, take that back to the team and be like, right, we got to fix this immediately. But let the customers tell your story because quite frankly, if you sit there, it's like you stand on top of the mountain or if you're at the cocktail party being like, hey, my name is Ian. Let me tell you why I'm awesome. What I think makes me awesome. It's not a way to make friends. But if you walk into a cocktail party full of people that you don't know and people are like, oh yeah, that's Ian. You know, he is the nicest guy. He's such a good listener. He's definitely something you should meet. That's what your customers represent to your brand. So let your customers tell that story, but make it easy for them to do so through a review cycle, through a reference motion, or even in like a private one-on-one conversation with a prospect, asking them to kind of index on like, you loved your customer experience. Will you tell our prospect about that? Because I think that might actually make the difference between whether they go with us or somebody else. What about your most cuttable budget item? What's the thing that you might not be investing as much this year? We are being very intentional this year to not do what I call random acts of marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all know what those are under the guise of you have to experiment, be innovative and try something new. Sometimes you will spend money on something that does not appeal to your audience, does not have any kind of cohesion or congruence with 
the stuff that you're already running in market. And yet some of these things are represented as shiny new objects, right? A new show to try out or like, hey, we were in this one purchase cycle and we saw this one new persona. So we have to do a whole campaign to this new persona. Maybe, but instead of firing off, like spending time in cycles and removing those resources from something else that we know is very important and like cohesive as part of an integrated campaign, maybe we figure out how to make some time and space to do a little bit more research. So I'm not, I'm not saying that we're slowing down on being bold, being innovative and experimenting, but we all know when someone comes to us with a shiny new object idea, that's like super, super tempting, but in your gut, you're like, maybe, but maybe not now. So we're trying to really cut down on those random acts of marketing that require a lot of time and bandwidth. While at the same time, trying to make sure that we're maintaining our flexibility to pivot where we need to, if we actually do see different market dynamics or want to take advantage of a, a market situation that you know has a, has a very finite window to it. How do you view your website? I view our website as a, an engagement engine. Back in the day, websites were a storefront. You put your stuff there and if people liked, they would come in. Now it's really about being a true engagement engine. So instead of just being a storefront, you actually have somebody out front asking, hey, you look like you could use these pink shoes. You look great in pink. Come on in. So how do you use all the tooling that's out there? There's an amazing array of tooling out there to not only make yourself findable, but once the person gets there, that they have an experience that meets their expectations and is able to fill their buying job. We talk a lot about how we make sure that our website is engaging for all of the humans that need to consume our content, whether they're current customers, research stage prospects that don't even want to tell us who they are yet, or an analyst or a journalist or a partner. And so we try to create experiences that, again, are reflective of the different people who have the different jobs and what they expect when they come to see us. Okay, let's get to our next segment, the desktop. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. Where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales teams, your competitor, or anyone else. Gina, have you had a memorable dust-up? Yes. Marketing holds the largest non-headcount budget in the company, generally speaking. And when times are hard, it doesn't take long for the money people to come knocking and be like, mm, you might need to you might need to give some money back to the business. That has happened, gosh, more times over my very long multi-decade career than I can count. And when that happens, I always look at conflict as we all have the same goal. We all want the company to be successful. And typically speaking, we're just talking about different paths to get there. So let's understand what that path is and what those needs are. And if we do, for example, have to give some money back, that the business understands what potential impact that will have on our ability to execute and giving us the challenge of going and operating more efficiently. So I love working with my sales teams. I love working with my finance teams. I try to build those relationships early so that when things get hard, I mean, everybody's always happy when the numbers are good, but when there's economic uncertainty or you have a bad quarter, it's really easy to get real chippy with each other. And it's if you don't have that foundation of trust, 
mutual respect and a shared understanding of the goals we're all trying to get to, it could be a lot worse. So I'm not saying I haven't had you know uncomfortable or sometimes downright ugly conversations, but I can say that by and large, all humans want to do the same thing. They want to do their job well. They want to feel good about the work that they do. And we're all working in service to the same goal, which is good revenue and good results for the company. So you just have to find a way to get there. Sometimes after those exchanges, I definitely come home and you know, watch some stupid reality TV show. But generally speaking, ready to get up the next morning, dust off and get back at it. All right, let's get to our final segment, quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers. Just like how Qualified.com helps companies generate pipeline quickly, tap into your greatest asset, your website to identify your most valuable visitors, and instantly, instantly start sales conversations. Quick and easy, just like these questions. By the way, Qualified just released that in the past year that they generated $2 billion in pipeline with their platform for their customers, which is freaking crazy. Go to Qualified.com wow. to learn more. Gina. Are you ready? I'm ready, Ian. Hit me. Let's go. Number one, what's a hidden talent or skill that is not on your resume? I sing really good 80s karaoke. <laughs> Do you have a favorite uh, song that you sing? What's your go-to? It depends on the audience, Ian. You always got to know your audience. I did realize by accident some years ago that I have the exact same vocal range of David Coverdale from Whitesnake. <laughs> so here I go again. It's a pretty popular one. Oh, that's awesome. Maybe we Do can have- do a duet someday. Yeah, I cannot say. I sing to my son, and uh, that's about it. <laughs> my wife is really good at singing, though. So, so whenever we maybe we she go, and I can do a duet. Yeah, you could definitely what's, do. What's her go-to song? Whitney Houston. I want to dance with somebody. Oh, I want to see that someday. Yeah, it's pretty. It's great. She can. I mean, nobody can hit Whitney's notes, but she can. She gets pretty close. Shout out to Becky. Do you have a favorite uh, book, podcast, or TV show that you'd recommend? The book that's on my desk right now is called The Advantage. So that's been around for a long time. What's the author's Hmm. name? Patrick Lencioni. Um, I think that's how you pronounce his name. It's all about high-functioning teams. So I've read it before and I'm reading it again and I'm learning something new every time. So I would definitely recommend The Advantage. Yeah, I don't know it. That's cool. Very cool. Why organizational health trumps business or helps trump something. Anyways, check it out, The Advantage. Okay, Gina, What advice would you give to a first-time CMO who's trying to figure out their marketing and demand strategy? Spend time with your customers, ask them insightful questions, make it a practice, build a muscle. Just like, you know, if you go to the gym every day, you should be able to do several push-ups by the end of six months. You should be able to build a muscle listening to your customers. And while listening to gong or chorus calls helps, it is not the same as actually talking to your customers. If you can meet them in person and buy them a cup of coffee, so much the better, but get time every month with a cohort of customers. Yeah. You got to be the one asking the questions because the marketer has those additional little things that are lurking in the back of your mind. And it builds trust. Guess what? If you, you know, if your customer actually sees some of the feedback that they've given you in your marketing materials, they like to be listened to because they're right. And they're the ones that'll point you in the way of good positioning and your offering in particular makes a difference in their lives. Gina, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting with you, catching up. Our listeners should go tell their risk people to check out logicgate.com and they can transform risk management with risk cloud from logicgate. Any other final thoughts, anything to plug? They should also tell their risk managers that they appreciate them. Yeah, we do appreciate them. Because those people keep us out of trouble every day. You got to appreciate your your cyber person. You got to 
Lock your laptop every time you walk away. Risk is everyone's business, folks. Hug your risk manager. I love it. Gina, thanks again. Thank you, Ian. It's great to be here. ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.